Chapter 24, Section 3 of the History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. The History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 24, Section 3. Both the Confederate kings wished their compact to remain a secret while their brother Charles lived, and it probably would have remained secret had it been confided only to the English and French ministers. But the institutions of the United Provinces were not well fitted for the purpose of concealment. It had been necessary to trust so many deputies and magistrates that rumors of what had been passing at Loo got abroad. Quiros, the Spanish ambassador at The Hague, followed the trail with such skill and perseverance that he discovered, if not the whole truth, yet enough to furnish materials for a dispatch which produced much irritation and alarm at Madrid. A council was summoned and sat long in deliberation. The grandees of the proudest of courts could hardly fail to perceive that their next sovereign, be he who he might, would find it impossible to avoid sacrificing part of his defenseless and widely scattered empire in order to preserve the rest. They could not bear to think that a single fort, a single islet, in any of the four quarters of the world was about to escape from the sullen domination of Castile. To this sentiment, all the passions and prejudices of the haughty race were subordinate. We are ready, such was the phrase then in their mouths, to go to anybody, to go to the Dauphin, to go to the devil, so that we all go together. In the hope of averting the threatened dismemberment, the Spanish ministers advised their master to adopt as his heir the candidate whose pretensions, it was understood, that France, England, and Holland were inclined to support. This advice was taken, and it was soon everywhere known that his Catholic majesty had solemnly designated as his successor his nephew Francis Joseph, electoral prince of Bavaria. France protested against this arrangement, not, as far as can now be judged, because she meant to violate the Treaty of Loo, but because it would have been difficult for her, if she did not protest, to insist on the full execution of that treaty. Had she silently acquiesced in the nomination of the electoral prince, she would have appeared to admit that the Dauphin's pretensions were unfounded. And if she admitted the Dauphin's pretensions to be unfounded, she could not, without flagrant injustice, demand several provinces as the price in consideration of which she would consent to waive those pretensions. Meanwhile, the Confederates had secured the cooperation of a most important person, the Elector of Bavaria, who was actually governor of the Netherlands, and was likely to be in a few months at farthest regent of the whole Spanish monarchy. He was perfectly sensible that the consent of France, England, and Holland to his son's elevation was worth purchasing at almost any cost, and, with much alacrity, promised that when the time came he would do all in his power to facilitate the execution of the Treaty of Partition. He was indeed bound by the strongest of ties to the Confederates of Lou. They had, by a secret article added to the treaty, agreed that if the electoral prince should become king of Spain, and then die without issue, his father should be his heir. The news that young Francis Joseph had been declared heir to the throne of Spain was welcome to all the potentates of Europe with the single exception of his grandfather, the emperor. The vexation and indignation of Leopold were extreme. But there could be no doubt that, graciously or ungraciously, he would submit. It would have been madness in him to contend against all Western Europe on land, 
and it was physically impossible for him to wage war on the sea. William was therefore able to indulge during some weeks the pleasing belief that he had by skill and firmness averted from the civilized world a general war which had lately seemed to be imminent, and that he had secured the great community of nations against the undue predominance of one too powerful member. But the pleasure and the pride with which he contemplated the success of his foreign policy gave place to very different feelings as soon as he again had to deal with our domestic factions. And indeed, those who most revere his memory must acknowledge that, in dealing with these factions, he did not, at this time, show his wanted statesmanship. For a wise man, he seems never to have been sufficiently aware how much offense is given by discourtesy in small things. His ministers had apprised him that the result of the elections had been unsatisfactory, and that the temper of the new representatives of the people would require much management. Unfortunately, he did not lay this intimation to heart. He had by proclamation fixed the opening of the Parliament for the 29th of November. This was then considered as a very late day, for the London season began together with Michaelmas term, and even during the war the King had scarcely ever failed to receive the compliments of his faithful lords and commons on the 5th of November, the anniversary both of his birth and of his memorable landing. The numerous members of the House of Commons who were in town, having their time on their hands, formed cabals, and heated themselves and each other by murmuring at his partiality for the country of his birth. He had been off to Holland, they said, at the earliest possible moment. He was now lingering in Holland to the latest possible moment. This was not the worst. The twenty-ninth of November came, but the king was not come. It was necessary that the Lord's justices should prorogue the Parliament to the sixth of December. The delay was imputed, and justly, to adverse winds. But the malcontents asked, with some reason, whether His Majesty had not known that there were often gales from the west in the German Ocean, and whether, when he had made a solemn appointment with the estates of his realm for a particular day, he ought not to have arranged things in such a way that nothing short of a miracle could have prevented him from keeping that appointment. Thus the ill-humor which a large proportion of the new legislatures had brought up from their country seats became more and more aced every day, till they entered on their functions. One question was much agitated during this unpleasant interval. Who was to be speaker? The junto wished to place Sir Thomas Littleton in the chair. He was one of their ablest, most zealous, and most steadfast friends, and had been, both in the House of Commons and at the Board of Treasury, an invaluable second to Montague. There was reason, indeed, to expect a strong opposition. That Littleton was a Whig was a grave objection to him in the opinion of the Tories. That he was a placeman, and that he was for a standing army, were grave objections to him in the opinion of many who were not Tories. But nobody else came forward. The health of the late Speaker Foley had failed. Musgrave was talked of in coffee-houses, but the rumor that he would be proposed soon died away. Seymour's name was in a few mouths, but Seymour's day had gone by. He still possessed, indeed, those advantages which had once made him the first of the country gentlemen of England. Illustrious descent, ample fortune, ready and weighty eloquence, perfect familiarity with parliamentary business. But all these things could not do so much to raise him as his moral character did to drag him down. Haughtiness such as his, though it could never have been liked, might, if it had been united with elevated sentiments of virtue and honor, have been pardoned. But of all the forms of pride, even the pride of upstart wealth not excepted, the most offensive is the pride of ancestry 
when found in company with sordid and ignoble vices, greediness, mendacity, knavery, and impudence. And such was the pride of Seymour. Many even of those who were well pleased to see the ministers galled by his keen and skilful rhetoric remembered that he had sold himself more than once, and suspected that he was impatient to sell himself again. On the very eve of the opening of Parliament, a little tract, entitled Considerations on the Choice of a Speaker, was widely circulated, and seems to have produced a great sensation. The writer cautioned the representatives of the people at some length against Littleton, and then in even stronger language, though more concisely, against Seymour, but did not suggest any third person. The 6th of December came, and found the country party, as it called itself, still unprovided with a candidate. The king, who had not been many hours in London, took his seat in the House of Lords. The commons were summoned to the bar, and were directed to choose a speaker. They returned to their chamber. Hardington proposed Littleton, and the proposition was seconded by Spencer. No other person was put in nomination, but there was a warm debate of two hours. Seymour, exasperated by finding that no party was inclined to support his pretensions, spoke with extravagant violence. He, who could well remember the military deputism of Cromwell, who had been an active politician in the days of the cabal, and who had seen his own beautiful county turned into a Golgotha by the bloody circuit, declared that the liberties of the nation had never been in greater danger than at the moment, and that their doom would be fixed if a courtier should be called to the chair. The opposition insisted on dividing. Hardington's motion was carried by 242 votes to 135. Littleton himself, according to the childish old usage which has descended to our times, voting in the minority. Three days later, he was presented and approved. The king then spoke from the throne. He declared his firm conviction that the houses were disposed to do whatever was necessary for the safety, honor, and happiness of the kingdom, and he asked them for nothing more. And when they came to consider the military and naval establishments, they would remember that, unless England were secure from attack, she could not continue to hold the high place which she had won for herself among European powers. Her trade would languish, her credit would fail, and even her internal tranquility would be in danger. He also expressed a hope that some progress would be made in the discharge of the debts contracted during the war. I think, he said, an English Parliament can never make such a mistake as not to hold sacred all parliamentary engagements. The speech appeared to be well received, and during a short time William flattered himself that the great fault, as he considered it, of the preceding session would be repaired, that the army would be augmented, and that he should be able, at the important conjecture which was approaching, to speak to foreign powers in tones of authority, and especially to keep France steady to her engagements. The Whigs of the Junto, better acquainted with the temper of the country, and of the new House of Commons, pronounced it impossible to carry a vote for a land force of more than ten thousand men. Ten thousand men would probably be obtained, if His Majesty would authorize his servants to ask in his name for that number, and to declare that with a smaller number he could not answer for the public safety. William, firmly convinced that twenty thousand would be too few, refused to make or empower others to make a proposition which to him seemed absurd and disgraceful. Thus, at a moment when it was peculiarly desirable that all who bore a part in the executive administration should act cordially together, there was serious dissension between him and his ablest counsellors. For that dissension neither he nor they can be severely blamed. 
They were differently situated, and necessarily saw the same objects from different points of view. He, as was natural, considered the question chiefly as a European question. They, as was natural, considered it chiefly as an English question. They had found the antipathy to a standing army insurmountably strong, even in the late Parliament, a Parliament disposed to place large confidence in them and in their master. In the new Parliament that antipathy amounted almost to a mania, that liberty, law, property could never be secured while the sovereign had a large body of regular troops at his command in time of peace, and that of all regular troops foreign troops were the most to be dreaded, had during the recent elections been repeated in every town hall and market-place, and scrawled upon every dead wall. The reductions of the preceding year, it was said, even if they had been honestly carved into effect, would not have been sufficient, and they had not been honestly carried into effect. On this subject, the ministers pronounced the temper of the commons to be such that if any person high in office were to ask for what His Majesty thought necessary, there would assuredly be a violent explosion, and the majority would probably be provoked into disbanding all that remained of the army, and the kingdom would be left without a single soldier. William, however, could not be brought to believe that the case was so hopeless. He listened too easily to some secret adviser, Sunderland was probably the man, who accused Montague and Summers of cowardice and insincerity. They had, it was whispered in the royal ear, a majority, whenever they really wanted one. They were bent upon placing their friend Littleton in the speaker's chair, and they had carried their vote triumphantly. They would carry, as triumphantly, a vote for a respectable military establishment, if the honor of their master and the safety of their country were as dear to them as the petty interests of their own faction. It was to no purpose that the king was told, what was nevertheless perfectly true, that not one half of the members who had voted for Littleton could, by any art or eloquence, be induced to vote for an augmentation of the land force. While he was urging his ministers to stand up manfully against the popular prejudice, and while they were respectfully representing to him that by so standing up they should only make that prejudice stronger and more noxious, the day came which the commons had fixed for taking the royal speech into consideration. The House resolved itself into a committee. The great question was instantly raised, what provision should be made for the defense of the realm? It was naturally expected that the confidential advisers of the Crown would propose something. As they remained silent, Harley took the lead which properly belonged to them, and moved that the army should not exceed seven thousand men. Sir Charles Sedley suggested ten thousand. Vernon, who was present, was of opinion that this number would have been carved if it had been proposed by one who was known to speak on behalf of the king. But few members cared to support an amendment which was certain to be less pleasing to their constituents, and did not appear to be more pleasing to the court than the original motion. Harley's resolution passed the committee. On the morrow it was reported and approved. The House also resolved that all the seven thousand men who were to be retained should be natural-born English subjects. Other votes were carried without a single division, either in the committee or when the mace was on the table. The King's indignation and vexation were extreme. He was angry with the opposition, with the ministers, with all England. The nation seemed to him to be under a judicial infatuation, blind to dangers which his sagacity perceived to be real, near, and formidable, and morbidly apprehensive of dangers which his conscience told him were no dangers at all. The perverse islanders were willing to trust everything that was most precious to them, their independence, their property, their laws, their religion. 
to the moderation and good faith of France, to the winds and the waves, to the steadiness and expertness of battalions of ploughmen commanded by squires. And yet they were afraid to trust him with the means of protecting them, lest he should use those means for the destruction of the liberties which he had saved from extreme peril, which he had fenced with new securities, which he had defended with the hazard of his life, and which from the day of his accession he had never once violated. He was attached, and not without reason, to the blue Dutch foot guards. That brigade had served under him for many years, and had been eminently distinguished by courage, discipline, and fidelity. In December 1688, that brigade had been the first in his army to enter the English capital, and had been entrusted with the important duty of occupying Whitehall and guarding the person of James. Eighteen months later, that brigade had been the first to plunge into the waters of the Boyne. Nor had the conduct of these veteran soldiers been less exemplary in their quarters than in the field. The vote which required the king to discard them, merely because they were what he himself was, seemed to him a personal affront. All these vexations and scandals he imagined that his ministers might have averted, if they had been more solicitous for his honor and for the success of his great schemes of policy, and less solicitous about their own popularity. They, on the other hand, continued to assure him, and as far as can now be judged, to assure him with perfect truth, that it was altogether out of their power to effect what he wished. Something they might perhaps be able to do. Many members of the House of Commons had said in private that seven thousand men was too small a number. If His Majesty would let it be understood that he should consider those who should vote for ten thousand as having done him good service, there might be hopes. But there could be no hope if gentlemen found that by voting for ten thousand they should please nobody, that they should be held up to the counties and towns which they represented as turncoats and slaves for going so far to meet his wishes, and that they should be at the same time frowned upon at Kensington for not going further. The king was not to be moved. He had been too great to sink into littleness without a struggle. He had been the soul of two great coalitions, the dread of France, the hope of all oppressed nations. And was he to be degraded into a mere puppet of the Harleys and the Hooves, a petty prince who could neither help nor hurt, a less formidable enemy, and a less valuable ally than the elector of Brandenburg or the Duke of Savoy? His spirit, quite as arbitrary and as impatient of control as that of any of his predecessors, Stuart, Tudor, or Plantagenet, swelled high against this ignominious bondage. It was well known at Versailles that he was cruelly mortified and incensed, and during a short time a strange hope was cherished there that, in the heat of his resentment, he might be induced to imitate his uncles, Charles and James, to conclude another treaty of Dover, and to sell himself into vassalage for a subsidy which might make him independent of his niggardly and mutinous parliament. Such a subsidy, it was thought, might be disguised under the name of a compensation for the little principality of Orange, which Louis had long been desirous to purchase even at a fancy price. A dispatch was drawn up containing a paragraph by which Tallard was to be apprised of his master's views, and instructed not to hazard any distinct proposition, but to try the effect of cautious and delicate insinuations, and, if possible, to draw William on to speak first. This paragraph was, on second thoughts, cancelled. But that it should ever have been written must be considered a most significant circumstance. End of Section 3, Chapter 24 of the History of England Reading by S. T. Macduff